Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to the great Star Trek movie review. Film number one, Star Trek The Motion Picture. So, everybody, welcome to our new series of shows about the Star Trek movie legacy. Now, this series is something Darren really wanted to do. And when he mentioned it, I thought it'd be great just to explore each of these films in detail. We're going to give a show to each of them, like we did with Rambo recently. We're going to be doing that with Star Trek, which will probably take us over a year. By the time we finish the series, we'll just about be out of lockdown. That'll be fantastic. <laughs> so, positive thinking, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Darren, for this great idea. Well, I really hope you still think that when we get to the end of it. <laughs> and what's good about this panel, so as you can tell, everybody listening, we have the usual crowd, myself, Neil and Graham. And what's good is we have two big fans of Star Trek, being Darren and Graham, and two people who enjoy them, but certainly not to that degree. And I would class Neil and I as that. Am I fair there, Neil, to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we are the objective ones, Neil. <laughs> so There's a first. <laughs> yeah. So the focus of the first show is Star Trek The Motion Picture, back in 1979, the first film. There is some background, however, we need to talk about first. So let's throw it open, and we'll start with you, Darren. It's your idea. What appealed to you about the original TV series? I was a little kid uh, when the Star Trek used to be shown on the BBC. So I kind of really grew up with it from, you know, from even being like my first sort of memories of watching TV. It was sort of Star Trek. But the great thing about Star Trek is it's something that I think you can really grow up with because there's so much going on. So as a little kid, I was into all the, the monsters, the fight scenes, the actions and everything. And then when you start to get a bit older, you get into the, the character dynamic and you really get into that. And then as you get, you know, get into like your teen years and that, you start to see all like the social um, issues that used to be in there. But some episodes which were sort of had like a, you know, a bit of a political background and everything. So it is something that I think you can sort of keep going back to. So you can enjoy just as a little kid. But then as you get older, you can sort of see the, you know, the, the other things that were sort of going on at the time. So I think it's something that just sort of, you know, you, you can really grow up with. As a Star Trek fan, there's so many TV series, so many films, um, some some a, a lot better than others, it has to be said. But I think there's just, you know, so much content in there you can really, you know, sink your teeth into. Neil, what appealed to you about the original series? Again, it, it was exciting. You know, they were in space, and that was basically it. Is that it's when you're brought up on something, you kind of get attached to it. It's just about the same as Darren was saying, I think. I, I suppose you were lucky it was on the BBC, because if it had been on ITV, you'd have never have seen it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to explain that one to Darren? We did have ITV, and we had a TV courtesy of the BBC, who insisted that Dad had one, and a colour one at that. Um, wow. He worked the BBC and he, we always joked that someone would say, oh, you know, this on ITV. And we, no, no, we don't watch ITV. Dad doesn't allow it sort of thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> what about you, Greg? When I first saw it, I was absolutely captivated because it was a, a complete world they built. They were on this five-year mission. So you thought, oh, this is going to last a while. We're going to see a lot of this. You know, <laughs> they had they had a spaceship and everything seemed to work on it. It could travel faster and light. They had these amazing ways of beaming down, up and down to planets. And that we'd never seen that before. They all carried ray guns, their phasers. The doctor could analyze you by wobbling a little device in front of your head. And it just seemed so well put together conceptually. You know, you had a sick bay, you had uh, lasers, the ship could defend itself, you could beam around anywhere. And he met every week, they met a sort of a different alien race. And so my first initial impressions was, this is great. I, and you can get really into it. And I, I was like everybody else, I was a kid at the time. So it really appealed to me. And for reasons I didn't understand till much later that, you know, the stories were quite moral. 
was always a good outcome to it. They tended to solve things by discussion more than fighting, although there was fighting and laser fights in it. I just thought it was great as a kid. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, Doctor Who was very, very simple. The, the Doctor would arrive on a planet in, at a different time and do some stuff and run around, but there was never a laser battle in Doctor Who. No. Okay. Well, it's interesting you say Doctor Who because the BBC put Star Trek on when it first was shown in the 60s in that BBC early Saturday evening slot. It was okay. I never really warmed to it. I think what Darren is saying is interesting. You you had the monsters and, and that was the thing that, that got you. It was years later when they showed it again in uh, 1978. They showed it on a Friday evening. The funny thing with this was I really started to get then all the ideas, the philosophy behind the show, the fact that this is, if you like, the, the Kennedy dynasty going into outer space, you know, the ideals of the, that America from the early 60s that was projected in through the show. And I got all of that at that time. My problem was I was in uh, my first serious relationship and uh, we'd always meet up after work at about seven o'clock in the evening and we go down to the pub, meet everybody else. So I missed the second half of the show. So I went through a whole series of these damn things, seeing the first <laughs> half only. And it was only years later I got to see the second half. And unfortunately, they were most of them were never as good as I wanted them to be. So I was really psyched then when the film was coming because I was in that mindset for it. But before we get to the film, Star Trek had an unusual life as a TV series. It had three series. Its ratings were poor at the end of it, and they got rid of it. But its ratings on reruns in the States got really high. Star Trek convention started, and everybody thought that was a joke until thousands of people started turning up. Most of the actors did the animated series in the mid-'70s, while there was only one series of that, I think it was quite successful. And they were going to bring back the series under the banner of Star Trek Phase Two in the late 70s. Why do you think there was a continuing interest for this series that should technically have died out in the 1960s? Graham, I'll start with you. Yeah, and again, I come back to it. It was a very complete show. I mean, it had interesting characters. It had, of course, Spock, who was great. Kirk was, you know, the obvious leader, but all the side characters, Chekhov and Sulu and Uhura and people like that were all fascinating. And I think when you get build a complete world and you fill it with interesting characters, you're going to get people interested in it. Plus, it was really the only hardcore sci-fi show around at the time. There were other things like Land of the Giants and Voyage yeah. to the Bottom of the Sea, but they all the tend champions. to be very military. I mean, this was in outer space with a spaceship and a crew, you know. So it it just had all of the right elements for that sort of sci-fi nerdy view of the world. And I think this was the first emergence of nerd culture. You know, nerds watched it and they went to conventions. You know, things that we'd think, well, that's what nerds do these days. But back then it was a bit of a surprise. Okay. Darren, I'm going to slightly change the question for you. You've got a bit more info on Star Trek Phase 2. What was all that about and, and what were they trying to do with this? I mean, Star Trek was still, you know, even after the TV show ended, it was still popular. A lot of it to do with syndication because that was a new concept where they would sell shows up to the other. And so whereas a show normally, once it was finished, that was it it would basically get sort of put around the channels. And so people who were sort of growing up or people who missed it the first time were getting a chance to watch it. So it kept in people's consciousness. But tried to make a film already, um, which we just basically just ne never came up. You know, there was a lot of top writers like Ralph Ellison and Ray Bradbury, I believe, who sort of tried to get involved, but nobody could work with Gene Roddenberry. You know, when all the conventions came around and everything, but they tried to capitalise this and, and do a, a TV show called Phase 2. Um, we'd have new members of the cast, but it would also have most of the original cast. But the one person who wasn't going to come back was Leonard Nimoy because he was he was actually suing uh, the makers of Star Trek for the uh, merchandising rights that they were uh, using. So he was on, on the out. Didn't he also write a book called I Am Not Spock? 
Yes, yeah, he he did he, he did. And then years later, he wrote a book called "I Am Spock," <laughs> which he basically was sort of <laughs> trying to basically sort Make of distance your bloody him. mind up, Spock. Yeah. <laughs> distance himself from the uh, from the, from the series and be recognised as a serious actor. And he also did the uh, infamous um, Bilbo Baggins EP. I don't know if you ever heard that little beauty when he tried to get into music. That's that's a cracker. Yes, not as good as the songs done by um, William Shatner, though. Oh God! Oh, oh Rocket yeah. Man! Yeah. <laughs> if you've never seen Free William Shatner singing Rocket Man, check it out on YouTube. It's the most amazing thing. But the thing is, everyone thought that Shatner was—I'm um, digressing a bit here—but everyone thought that Shatner was doing this for laughs, and and he wasn't. He was actually really serious about this. Going back to Phase Two, it was basically basically do a new revamped TV show. They'd got scripts ready. They'd got sets ready. They'd got everything sort of lined up. We were about two weeks away from starting the starting production. And all of a sudden, they basically said, no, we're not doing that. We're doing a film. And this is because um, Star Wars had um, come out, which obviously got sort of, you know, a, a different interest in sci-fi. But also just as much as Close Encounters were, was a massive hit. Now, the, the thing about Close Encounters is a sci-fi film. It's also not the Star Wars sort of spaceship Buck Rogers Flash Gordon style. This was like a, an intelligent take on sci-fi. So the producers thought that there's still an appeal for a fun sci-fi show, but with a little bit of, of intelligence to it. So that was basically what made it, apparently made them decision just to junk the TV show and go into the film. And the fact of the matter is that a lot of the stuff that they'd prepared, including the storyline for, uh, for the pilot, they basically just adapted that into the movie. They were supposed to start filming the TV show in November and then they basically just axed that at last minute. And by April, they'd started making the um, motion picture. Right. That, that's really interesting, Darren. I didn't know any of that. I didn't. Mm, I thought they just were going to make the new TV show and, and stopped. I didn't realise that they took the pilot episode and tried to turn it into a movie. Apparently, yeah. That's just pick up on what Darren was saying there about the film. So it started in April of 79, started the film, a $35 million budget, which at that time, bear in mind that Star Wars was made a couple of years before that on an $8 million budget. So that shows the scale that this thing was being given. They wanted to release it at Christmas, so it was rushed. And we'll talk about that a bit in a moment. Roddenberry was back in charge. He called the shots. They brought on an Oscar-winning director, Robert Wise. He previously directed... Day the Earth stood still, the Haunting, and particularly the Sound of Music. The cast were all back. So, what I want to ask is, and I'll start with you, Neil, again. What did you think when you first heard there was going to be a cinema version of Star Trek? I completely ignored it. I wasn't <laughs> very interested at all. No, um, no I didn't too. even watch it. I watched it when it came on the TV several years later. Um, okay, I just I just was past it by then. Okay, Darren. Sorry, I'm looking, that's it's not right. a great start for, to that question, is it? No, <laughs> looking for a more lively answer from Darren. <laughs> I remember seeing the first trailer for it, and, and bear in mind, I'd be about six years old, and my reaction is, I was scared. And the reason why I was scared is that there was two different things about television and films to me. Television was quite sort of safe. You, you would watch something like Star Trek, you'd have a story. And by the end of this story, everything would be resolved and everything back to normal for the next episode. And no one ever got killed or anything like that. It was just sort of an ongoing thing. You know, Star, you know, Star Trek on TV was safe. The films that I grew up watching, um, because I used to watch films a lot with my parents, I'd see stuff like, for example, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Great Escape, things like King Kong movies, The Italian Job. Now, what these films a lot had in common is... It didn't always have a happy ending. If that's you know, you, you would sort of have like characters get mm. killed. So film to me, in my mind, made the stakes higher. And so I was worried that they were actually making this film. And the reason why we're going to make this film is that we're going to kill people off. To me, growing up, that was the difference between TV and film. And so I, I was actually like quite nervous. That's really interesting. I hadn't even thought of it like that. Graham, I'd have I'd have preferred your version. If if the stakes had been much higher, it'd been quite scary, and people had got killed, that that have made a bit much better film. 
Yeah, but it was a bit like Galaxy Quest. The ones they wasted <laughs> were the ones that nobody wanted. The red what? shirts Ga- always the red die. Shirts. Galaxy Quest kind of ruined everything for Star Trek for me, I think. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> as we go later com- into this series. Through a completely different lens. Yeah, Galaxy yeah. Quest will be coming out. I think what was interesting for me is not the fact that, that Star Trek was coming out then. This was two and a half years after Star Wars had been released. And if you bear in mind that the length of time these science fiction films were being made, and I appreciate this one was rushed through, but with that Christmas, you had three films coming out. You had Star Trek, The Motion Picture, The Black Hole, and Meteor. Three of Graham's favourites there. Um, <laughs> what a so, pile of Yeah, you had a, a science fiction Christmas in the cinema. And again, that was unheard of. So I think the whole thing was really good. But just to give our listeners a reminder of what it was like, Graham, could you put in a bit of the original trailer here, please? Travel forward with us 300 years into the future to confront the greatest mystery ever to threaten mankind. We are aboard a huge starship called the Enterprise. This is the return of Captain Kirk. An alien object of unbelievable destructive power is less than three days away from this planet. Mr. Spock. I offer my services as science officer. Dr. McCoy. Scotty. And joining them on their mission, Commander Will Decker and Navigator Ilea. This, then, is the epic journey of the Starship Enterprise, traveling to the outer limits of time and space to challenge a vast, living machine of destruction. The human adventure is just beginning. Star Trek, the motion picture. So it came out for Christmas 1979. Expectation was high. Let's talk about your first viewing of the film. And Darren, after that lead-in on on your thoughts on the film, what happened when you saw it? I didn't see the film to a lot later because actually, believe it or not, never actually went to see it in the cinema. And I I honestly don't know why. Um, I didn't see it until I got a, a video recorder quite a few years later. So I finally got to see the film. It was... I have to say that, you know, watching it as a as a kid, even though I was a little bit older, it was just so slow. Having sort of like getting used to films, to sci-fi, which had basically sort of changed quite a lot by the time I saw it into the Star Wars adventure and stuff like, you know, the Book Rogers TV show, you know, films like The Black Hole, Battle on the Stars. To have this film, you know, Star Trek now, which was almost a throwback to the 70s style of sort of like 2001 A Space Odyssey and Silent Running and those type of films, which were were films I loved. But watching, you know, Star Trek, it was just so unbearably slow. At the time, the whole scene with the Enterprise just sort of dragged. Then we had this sort of scene later when it gets to VJ and we're going to the gas cloud. That whole sort of sequence was all like, if you ever had one of those kaleidoscopes as a kid, that you used to basically put to your eye and make you sort of spin round, it would change your mercury's colour. That's what it felt like for about 20 minutes, just sort of going through these sort of like this yeah. really surreal sort of psychedelic visuals. And it was just sort of so dull. It took an age to get where it was going. Uh, you know, and then when you when you actually got to, there wasn't any sort of like sort of, you know, the space battles that I was into. It was a lot of sort of talking and discussing. There were some things I, I did actually like about it, which we'll come to later, but generally speaking, it, it felt weirdly old-fashioned. All I could think was, God, they look old. <laughs> and, and it looked like one episode that had been stretched out to a film and we'll just, we spent so much on the, the Enterprise, we'll just go round and round and round it, showing everybody. Yeah, I, I did go to see it in the cinema. It's quite strange. I, I quite enjoyed it. I think seeing the Star Trek up on the big screen was quite good for me and I did think they all looked older. But once we got to the Scotty taking Kirk up to the Enterprise in the little pod. Oh, my God, it just dragged and dragged. And I was thinking, yeah, okay, 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 okay. come on, let's go, let's go. Mr. Scott, an alien object of unbelievable destructive power is less than three days away from this planet. The only starship in interception range is the Enterprise. Ready or not, she launches in 12 hours. Haven't had near enough transition time with all our new equipment. And the engines are not even tested at what power... And an unfight, Captain. Two and a half years as Chief of Starfleet Operations may have made me a little stale, but I 
wouldn't exactly consider myself untried. They gave her back to me, Scotty. Gave her back, sir? I doubt it was that easy with Nagura. You're right. <laughs> well, any man who could manage such a feat, I would not dare disappoint. She'll launch on time, sir. And she'll be ready. And then they, they have problems with the warp drive and they go into a, a wormhole. Uh, and I thought, yeah, okay, that's quite interesting. And then it just fell off a cliff. And the whole rest of the film was dreadful. And I remember coming out and, and saying, this is really <laughs> poor. And and then I forgot about it. I really just forgot about it. I never watched it again until this show, actually. That's the okay. first time I've seen it since 79. We'll cover that in a moment. Well, well, for me, I actually was on a Christmas lunch that day and I'd booked the afternoon off to see it. So I was pissed up, well-fed, going in to watch an all-action <laughs> film that would keep me awake. So <laughs> there I am <laughs> watching this Enterprise start going over Vija, fell asleep, woke up, God knows how many hours later, and it was still going over Vija. <laughs> and uh, I think you've all picked up on the same failings. It is slow. It had a lot of problems. There were moments of it I really liked. And again, as Darren said, we'll talk about those as we go through it. But uh, my initial reaction was disappointment. So for this, we've all rewatched the film for this show. And there are three cuts of the film out there. There's the original cinema version, which is 132 minutes long. There's the TV version, which is 146 minutes long. And there's the director's cut, which also tidied up some of the special effects, which was done in 2001. Oh, the irony. <laughs> and that's 136 minutes long. So what one of those three did you watch for this show? And did that rewatch change your mind? Neil? I watched the middle one, the TV one, I think. Yeah, it was too long then. Graham? I watched the director's cut. That was a bit of a mistake. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I don't know, 10 minutes, 12 minutes longer or something. Yeah. Four minutes. It, but it, it, it'd be, it was four minutes longer than the cinema version, but <laughs> they've, they've reworked a lot of the effects. It's a completely different film in, in many ways, and its effects were updated. Oh, you couldn't tell. And I had the same experience as you, Jeff. I put it on the telly, I started watching it, and then I fell asleep. And you phoned me and woke me up, you bastard. Yeah, no, no, no. Look, I was pissed and full of turkey. What was your excuse? <laughs> Darren, which one did you watch? I, I watched the director's cut. Yeah, but I think the one I've always watched in the past, I think I've watched all three at one point or another, but the one I'm, I'm more familiar with is the, uh, is the television cut. Uh, but it was the director's cut that mm. I watched for this one. I've got to say I had a lot more patience with it this time around, and there are sort of things that I do actually in, enjoy about it. The scene with the, when you first get to the Enterprise, I think I actually appreciate a lot more. I sort of understand now what we were going through in, in that scene because the thing about Star Trek is the ships have always been a character within the TV show. So there's a bit of reverence to them. It's not like in Star Wars where you've just got the Millennium Falcon, which is iconic, but they don't live in the ship the whole time. It's not sort of that massive as sort of, you know, a, a place in the film. And I think we'll just sort of, you know, because they've got this new ship and, you know, totally redone it and we've got a special... I think we were just basically sort of showing you the reverence that this figure had. And it also was trying to get across the fact that this is the whole motivation of Kirk in the film because Kirk's in love with the Enterprise. The, the mission is kind of secondary to him. Everything about, the, you know, what he does is basically being on the Enterprise and getting the Enterprise back. So I think he was just trying to get it over the importance. It does go on a little bit. Actually, I appreciate how it shows you in stages and then they finally gets to a halfway and shows you like a big re reveal. So I, I didn't mind it as much. I have to say that the film as a whole, when it gets to the Vija thing, and, and even before that, when it when you know he's, he's on a journey on, on onto the mission, and the, the only sort of problem that we seem to have is basically bumping into an asteroid. It, it's very slow, but and and the, the mission itself is really uninteresting. But the thing that I did get out of it more watching time is is the character moments and basically the, the Spock arc the Kirk arc, and, and even the, the VJ arc. So I did actually enjoy those elements more. 
Yeah, did you think the, the bit where they're going up to the Enterprise, it, you're right, it's sort of majestic and cinematic and you get this huge big ship and they're coming up in this tiny little pod and I liked that bit. But, you know, 20 minutes or however long it was, it felt like 20 minutes, you know, that's just too much. And everything moving so slowly, that little pod seems to crawl along. I, I actually timed it like like a nerdy. It's actually it's actually four and a half minutes, so, so maybe it felt longer. I, I just to be to, to to be honest, kind of sometimes when I watch an old film, I kind of find some of the things that they do. You know, because if they do something different to nowadays, I find it kind of a bit refreshing. So having a bit where you were able to just mm. sort of like have a slow build, you know, and, and get the time to actually look at look at something. It, it just felt a little different from what you get nowadays. When when you compare it to, like, the J.J. Abrahams um, Star Trek, the first time you see the Enterprise, and it's practically, it, oh, look out the window, bam, there it is. And, and then you've got about, <laughs> like, five seconds to have looked at it, and then you're inside and going through a thing. Whereas this... I've got to admit, it's a kind of sort of goosebumpy bit moment that you're sort of seeing this old friend but you've not seen for ages. Because what you got to mm. remember is when this came out, there'd not been any Star Trek for uh, for years. So it was kind of like, you know, if you're a Star Trek fan at the time, you'd have been sort of being reacquainting yourself with an old friend and also an upgrader because the ship looks a lot different to what it does in the TV show. And it does set up the whole thing that, you know, you see the joy on Kirk's face and the awe that him and Scotty's, because Scotty's in love with the ship as well. That really comes through in the later films. In a way, that sets up some of the things that happen later in the series when they lose the Enterprise. In fact, it just gets over the importance of the ship as a character. I saw the original cinema version of this, replaying back through in my mind some of the things you were saying there, well, both you, Darren and Graham, and... You know, watching that original cinema version without the benefits of the touch-ups they did in 2001, it is still pretty poor, and those effects haven't stood out. And I, I want to go back to what you were saying about, you know, for the Star Trek fans, it was a big deal because the, the, it hadn't been, other than the animated series, we hadn't seen anything of these guys for pretty much 11 years by this stage. But the disappointment, the reviews at the time, and Star Trek fans just getting really annoyed about how this film played out. I mean, Shatner himself said he didn't see it till it was in the cinema because they rushed production, and we'll talk about that a bit as we go on. And he said, that is so slow. That's the end of Star Trek then. It was good while it ran. So even mm. he didn't expect this film to go on for the amount of money it was, the awful reviews it was getting. But it did enough business for them to decide we can still do this, but we'll take a different approach. That, I think, is the irony of it. If you wrote a list, you could go through and do a Star Trek bingo and tick off. Every single character got his moment. The ship got its big moment for pretty much a third of the movie. And everything had to be ticked off. The arguments, the discussions. Bones comes in and goes on some nonsensical argument with with himself. Spock is um, inscrutable. It it just ticked so many boxes. I think they forgot that they needed to actually put a plot in there. That leads on to a really interesting point about that plot and about the rushing into production. They had Isaac Asimov on there, who just mm. consulted, but the, the idea of the plot came from Alan Dean Foster. Alan Dean F Foster. I mean, <laughs> let's be honest here. This is a guy that wrote novelizations for a living. So he came up with a story. And Darren quite rightly pointed out to me, he didn't actually write the script. That was written by Harold Livingston. So I read up on Livingston, a chap who mainly wrote TV episodes. This is the biggest thing he ever wrote in his career. Did he have his hands tied behind his back because people were saying, oh, no, you, you can't just go from here to here. You have to have this interaction with so-and-so to have these two people in a room and these two and these two. Kirk has to be a dickhead. Spock has to be the inscrutable one, etc., etc. One of the problems with Star Trek is the films can't leave the TV series behind. They're constantly referencing back to it. And I think that's a bad thing. And in this case, this whole film is a remake of the episode The Changeling on a much bigger scale. However, there is another problem with the writing. And Darren, I'll hand that to you. Well, uh, see, one of, one of the, the problems that you had with this film is... Um, 
to get Lenin Nimoy back on board, he also had to have um, approval of certain points of, of script to do with his character. And also Shatner had the same. So they were constantly looking at the script and basically rewriting as they went along. Apparently, when they first started filming, they were told most of the rest of the cast that not to bother learning the lines for the final third of the film because it was all going to be changing anyway. This is how in flux the film actually was. Combine that with the fact that the, um, the special effects company are um, underachieving and you've just got a complete and utter mess of a, a pr- production. There was a magazine that did a, an on-set report of, of Star Trek and they were interviewing people. They were people there saying just openly in interviews that they didn't think this film was going to get completed for the release date. You know, it, it was that bad. So the thing about the release date that's, uh, that was really important is they'd done something where they'd sold all the rights to all the theatres beforehand and already taken the money. So nowadays, when the film basically gets to the, uh, you know, starts running over, they just put the uh, the date back several months and, and get it finished or whatever. With this one, they were sort of le- in a legal bind to actually get it out, you know, for Christmas. Cause, you know, and if they hadn't, there'd have been sort of, you know, massive sort of, um, you know, lawsuits involved. Permission to come aboard, sir. Granted, sir. Granted. Why, it's Mr. Spock. Commander, if I may, I've been monitoring your communications with Starfleet Command, Captain. I'm aware of your engine design difficulties. I offer my services as science officer. With all due respect, Commander. If our exec has no objections? Of course not. I'm well aware of Mr. Spock's qualification. Mr. Chekhov, log Mr. Spock's Starfleet Commission reactivated. List him as science officer, effective immediately. Mr. Spock. Well, so help me, I'm actually pleased to see you. It's how we all feel, Mr. Spock. Captain, with your permission, I will now discuss these fuel equations with the engineer. Mr. Spock, welcome aboard. That's really, really interesting, Darren, because that actually shows in the film. You know, that that sort of muddled lines and strange camera angles used to when uh, Shatner or Nimoy is trying to deliver a line and you think, hang on, this has been shot a few times and, and this doesn't look right. And there is, I mean, the only time that things seem to flow, because uh, it's very staccato, the whole dialogue is very choppy. Is no, when they're in the <laughs> It's when they're in the ready room, the, the four old characters are working together as a team, they sort of go back into TV mode and that works quite well. But yeah, yeah. you see that the thing, the other thing is it seems to be a film of bits, you know? So the opening bit I thought was very good. You know, here's the Klingon empire, what? three, three warbirds coming at this thing. Just on that point, one of those Klingons in the beginning seems to be playing Space Invaders on whatever device he was on. <laughs> oh, it's of its time, Jeff. Come on, okay. give it a chance. But, it, I mean, it does. It sets it up great. You have this sort of unstoppable force coming towards Earth, and the Klingons just got wiped out in an instant. Then it wipes out one of the Federation's bases, just takes it off the map, and you think, oh, this thing's incredibly powerful. How are they going to do this? And can, then can I sorry, interject again? Sorry, Graham. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that when the Klingon ships are destroyed and the space station is destroyed, they're still feeding footage back to the um, people yes. on whatever ship they're on. Yes, that, that <laughs> and, irritated and no, me greatly. Yeah, yeah there's what no the cameras hell? there. Everything uh, no, destroyed were... except the camera and the link. Yeah. <laughs> No, let's go to an outside <laughs> view, Kirk says at one point, and it yeah. miraculously just chops to an outside view watching the a, space station. We've got a blimp destroyed. up there showing pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, we're not even covering the dialogue here. Things like when they refer at one point to feature as a thing out there. Really? Yeah. Uh, and my <laughs> worst, it bugged me when I first saw it, and it bugs me every time I see it. It's when they use that line, it's what they used to call a black hole. No, 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 no. You would say what it is. I mean, that really annoys me. So black holes are not named anymore, but wormholes are. Okay, fine. Okay. 
Anyway, Graham, sorry I interrupted you with a rant I mid-flow there. I have no I? idea where I was going. No, okay. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, it, just, it started well, is, is what I thought. And so it, it ramped up the tension. Then we had that dip when they introduced uh, Kirk and the Enterprise. And I thought, right, there, and now you go off and really hammer home this thing. And it doesn't. It becomes a big talking shop, bad talking shop. And again, we're going to get to the film itself in a minute, but I just want to, you know, this started in a, in, in April, it had to be released in December because there were legal issues with it. And they got Robert Wise, a guy who was 66 years old. And it was the last significant thing he did. He did two films after this, uh, Rooftops, uh, 10 years later, and a TV movie a few years after that. But this was essentially his last film. Whereas they needed, if you look at that time in the 70s, when you had all these young directors, I mean, somebody like Spielberg directing this would have been interesting. But I think somebody like John Melius at this time, having done The Wind and the Lion, Big Wednesday, to come on to something like Star Trek. He's a great writer as well. I think could have made something very interesting. They just didn't have the time. time. No. Didn't have the time, no. Darren, uh, any word on director? I I mean, you mentioned Spielberg, but I I don't think there's any way that Spielberg would have uh, done something. Spielberg would would want, like, control and everything like that. I think the the amount of people who will be willing to put up with uh, Gene Roddenberry, I I think that basically went for, like, a classic Hollywood director. And he had done sci-fi before. He'd done The Andronomous Train. He'd done The uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still. Unfortunately, he wasn't that familiar with Star Trek. Apparently, they had to send him a load of episodes for him to watch and familiarise himself with it. I think whatever director that they had was going to have so many problems with the sort of, with the, all the issues which were coming up, all the egos involved and everything. Ideally, if you'd have given it to a, a director who were like one of the young up and comers and given like a carte blanche to do their own vision, it might have been great. But I, I, I don't think that was ever going to happen with all, with, with all the stuff that came with doing a Star Trek film with, with the makers, with Roddenberry, with Shatner. I, I think basically the, the most you could sort of probably hope for is just a dependable guy who could get the film on time and just cope with, with a lot of these egos. I, I want to stick with this character thing and the, and the two main characters there because they both had unusual arcs and these arcs are expanded in the other versions more than more than here. Spock's arc of trying to forget his past and move on to something else because he couldn't complete Colin R. Whereas Kirk is trying to relive the past by becoming a commander of uh, the Enterprise again. Part of it is because he's in love with the ship, which Darren said earlier. But I think part of it is also his own narcissism, where he he felt he was at his best in control of the ship. And again, it's this Kennedy thing, you know, I want to be in charge. I want to bed as many women as I can, which he does throughout the series, although he doesn't hear. So Persis Combata was safe. It's this arc of one looking forward and one looking back. All due respect, sir, I hope this isn't some kind of Starfleet pep talk. I'm really too busy. I'm taking over the center seat, Will. You're what? I'm replacing you as captain of the Enterprise. You'll stay on as executive officer. Temporary grade reduction to commander. You personally are assuming command? Yeah. May I ask why? My experience. Five years out there dealing with unknowns like this. My familiarity with the Enterprise, it's crew. Admiral, this is an almost totally new Enterprise. You don't know her a tenth as well as I do. That's why you're staying aboard. I'm sorry, Will. No, Admiral. I don't think you're sorry. Not one damn bit. I remember when you recommended me for this command. You told me how envious you were and how much you hoped you'd find a way to get a Starship Command again. Well, sir, it looks like you found a way. Again, that was reasonably entertaining for me. I don't know what you thought, right? Yeah, yeah, and I did like that. And, yeah, it's probably a bit too in your face that arc you know you, you get this kirk the ship defined him this role defined him he's obviously been moved up to admiral now and he's bored in his job and he wants to go back and relive his glory days yeah that's fine and spock who always struggled with his his human side tries at the start to get rid of his human side and then realizes he can't 
uh, and he's troubled. So he goes back to his, his sort of his safe place, which is the, the science station on the bridge of the Enterprise. Yeah, I liked that piece of it, but it never went anywhere. Well, no, I, I disagree. I actually disagree with that because I disagree. he realizes in the end that, yeah, that Vija is pure logic. And to get to the next stage, it has to bring in human emotion, human irrationality. And Spock realizes at that point, throwing away his human side is a mistake. He needs that. Darren, over to you. The arcs that Kirk and um, Spock have are the, the most interesting things in, in the film. With Kirk, obviously, and it's pretty much hammered home, the fact that he he wants to be in the Enterprise. He wants to be out there. He wants to be making a difference. In, in fact, this actually um, is something that sort of comes up in later films. In fact, even in in way forward in generations, his one thing to Picard that he says, he says, don't let them take you out of that chair. Don't let them promote you. Don't. Because when you're in the chair, you can make a difference. And I think you can call it narcissism or whatever. But he, you know, he wants to be in that position. And that obviously puts him in, in conflict with, with Decky. Even though Kirk, I think, starts to realise he's not the man for the job because he doesn't know this enterprise. You know, he, uh, he, he basically makes a big thing of the fact that he's got the experience of everything. But he is, he is not. The, the person to be leading this mission. But it's like, you know, a, an interesting character feeling on, on his part. One of the things I did pick up on as, as even as a little kid watching it, what was realising that Kirk is basically being a, a dick in this film. And, and McCoy tells him as such, you know, he tells him that he's competing with Decker, but he's, but he's basically resentful of Decker because he's the younger guy who's basically doing what he wants to be doing. And so he's, even when he tries to basically sort of compliment him on saving the ship, he does it in a sort of way that he's, so, he's sort of not he's still trying to browbeat him. The, the whole theme of Star Trek Emotion Picture is trying to find your place where you are meant to be. And I think that's the same with Spock. And, and like you say, with, with Spock, what he wants is basically to commit himself to the Vulcan way of total logic, total knowledge, without the distraction of any human emotions. But the thing is, when he meets Vija, he, he, Vija is basically what he wants to be. And when he mind melds with him, he finds that Vija has got all this knowledge, all this logic, and he's basically got everything that Spock could ever dream of having. He can't do anything with it because he has no emotion. And, and I think there's this scene where he's on the hospital bed and he's just sort of, where's he's reciting this? You can see almost this humbling moment in Spock when he sort of realises that what he is trying to get rid of is what Vija is, is searching. This is sort of like, you know, Spock realising that you need that balance. There's a moment when he sort of like just touches uh, Jim Kirk and it's a, like almost like a tender moment for a second and he just looks at Kirk and just says, Vija can't comprehend this, this, this touch. To me, the whole film is about finding your purpose and, and, and what your role is. Almost to, and just to be like really glib about this, but the whole question is, why am I here? That, that to me will be interesting parts of, of this movie. It's just that there wasn't a story engaging enough around that. So I just want a couple of things I want to pick up. And one, Darren, I'm just going to throw straight at you, is when we were preparing notes for this, you spoke about the transporter accident, which is something that really didn't, intrigued me that much it certainly intrigued you and i'd like to know why um because it freaked me out as a kid it, it re and, and even now <laughs> I, 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 it, even now when i watch it i think it's a really disturbing scene because what happens is there's a transporter malfunction and they start to lose the signal and so they're battling to try to get this signal in and then they start to form and because the signals um, are coming all corrupted and that, all the molecules are coming in displaced. And it's a really creepily but well done scene because they start, they don't form completely. You just see enough of them. So you see that their, their faces are all distorted and that their eyes coming at the side of the face. And what one of the, uh, the, the, the yeoman who's, you know, who's on the, uh, the transporter goes, oh no, they're forming. And one of them just lets out this massive, awful scream, and it's absolutely blood-curdling. And then they start to basically sort of disappear again. And at the time, this segment stuck with me. It really got into my head. You hear somebody at the uh, at the other side of the transport. Kirk says to them something like, you know, have you got them? And they say, what we got back didn't live very long. And then there's this pause, and he just says, fortunately. 
And as a kid, that just freaked me out because it was, what the hell were they like when they, uh, you know, my imagination went, what the hell were they like when they sort of like got back? And even now, I just think that whole scene is actually like really, really well done. I think there's loads of suspense in it and the look of horror at Monksboro's crew. The thing about this film is there's not a lot of great humanity shown by the thing. I think that, you know, it's a the very cold performances at times. But in that moment, they do, they do just look like they're distressed at what's happened. And they sort of, and I just think it's a really well done, unnerving scene. As I said, I want to sort of, because of time, bring this to a close. But there's one thing I want to talk about before we do that. And one thing that really, really works in this film, and that's Jerry Goldsmith's music, which I think is superb. Didn't it should have won the Oscar that year? The reason it didn't win the Oscar is because Veray Saraband, a company that started up specializing in soundtracks, used that year to start a new promo gimmick of sending LPs to all Academy members. And the LP they sent was George de la Rue's score for a Little Romance, which is a good score, but it's nothing like this. And because of that, a Little Romance won the Oscar. And Goldsmith lost out in what would have been his second Oscar. But what are your thoughts on the score? Uh, Graham, I'll start with you. Oh, loved it. Yeah, it was very, very good. Yes, and took in the original Star Trek theme as well and expanded it out and made it more. Yeah, that worked cinematically. That worked much better than the actual film itself. So, Mm. yeah, that was a high point for me. Obviously, you told me, oh, it's a great score. So I was actually listening out for it. And it was. And yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, even at an overture, they used Ilya's yes. theme as an overture, which is wonderful. Mm. I think it's the best part of the film. I I, I, I think that some some of the <laughs> yeah. some yeah. of the scenes that, um, for example, the Enterprise scene, I think part of the reason why I enjoyed it the second time around is I think the the music is absolutely wonderful and builds to this massive majestic crescendo, and and it's funny because there's um, the theme music. In that, a lot of people call it the next generation theme music. When, you know, people hear that tune and think, oh, Star Trek, the next generation. And it's not. It's basically from the motion picture. To me, it's a testament to how great this theme was, that they kept it throughout the films. Mm. All the costume designs and everything and the, and the you know, the, the looks and everything like that, they all changed massively. The one thing that stayed constant was this theme music. It became even more iconic than the original Star Trek theme because you don't get the original Star Trek theme very much. You just get a little tinkle in it now and then, but you don't miss it because this music's so great. And also, don't forget the Klingon music that we hear at the start. That mm-hmm. resurfaced whenever mm-hmm. the Klingons in yeah. later films. So, so to me, but even if you don't like the film, the one triumph in this movie, and I think the lasting effect that it had, was basically bringing us this absolutely, you know, you know, wonderful music and i think not just the females but also the music that accompanies vija it sort of gives it a bit of menace and i think you know the the, the score is, is is absolutely you know wonderful and for, and for me makes the movie okay neil yes echoing all of that it certainly made the uh the endless bit where they're going round and round and round the uh the enterprise uh far better yeah i i I saw Goldsmith in concert once and obviously did a suite of his themes from Star Trek. And he said, you know, I like liking the music for Star Trek, but I don't understand anything that's going on on screen. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we're with him on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so this film commercially did okay, enough to warrant other films, which we'll talk about next time. Paramount essentially blamed Roddenberry and he was cut out after that. But, but let's sum up where we where we think this fits. Final final words, Darren. I think it's uh, an interesting curiosity. It has a, a style that's that's interesting, and it does have some good character moments. And it is basically the whole point of the film is at the very ending, everyone is basically where they're supposed to be. Every you know the gang's back together, and that's the whole point of the film is bringing everybody back from where they were and putting them in the place that they are best. Did we just see the beginning of a new life form? Yes, Captain. We witnessed a birth. Possibly a next step in our evolution. I wonder. Well, it's been a long time since I delivered a baby. And I hope we got this one off to a good start. I hope so, too. I think we gave it the ability to create its own sense of purpose. 
out of our own human weaknesses and the drive that compels us to overcome them. And a lot of foolish human emotions, right, Mr. Spock? Quite true, Doctor. Unfortunately, it will have to deal with them as well. Interrogative from Starfleet. They're requesting damage and injury reports and complete vessel status. Report two casualties. Lieutenant Ilea. Captain Decker. Aye, sir. Correction. They're not casualties. They are. List them as missing. Vessel status fully operational. Aye, sir. Mr. Scott. Shall we give the Enterprise a proper shakedown? I would say it's time for that, sir. Aye. We can have you back on Vulcan in four days, Mr. Spock. Unnecessary, Mr. Scott. My task on Vulcan is completed. Mr. Sulu, ahead warp one. Warp one, sir. Heading, sir. Out there. That way. It's not a great film, but I I think there's a lot more depth in this one than there is in quite a few other later ones. Neil? Echoing Darren's comments, yes, everybody is in the right place and uh, it's uh, remind them who, it, who they were and what they were in the original series um, and start from there. It's a prologue, really, and not a very good one. Graham? It's a difficult and complicated birthing process for the next films coming up so yes it's a bit muddled the music's great um it finally gets to a conclusion after a lot of work but it as darren says it's a new beginning but at the end you've got the the crew back together again they've put the band back on the road and now they can take off and the second film is significantly better Mm. well for me it ends where it should have started with kirkish saying the words where do you want to go out there and i think we'll see more of that as it take a complete change of direction with star trek 2 rather khan which we'll be talking about next month so we'll begin our band of oldies and darren is the young guy with us um <laughs> don't wear the red shirt darren um <laughs> as we, we talk about the next film in the series next month guys thank you all very much and we'll play out with some of goldsmith's wonderful theme 